the foghorn means it is time for the cavish ships podcast where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day in the united states across the seas and around the world i'm chris cavis and i'm chris cervello coming up it was a busy week for potential and upcoming naval developments the u.s navy is readying the carrier gerald r ford for its first extended cruise The Russian-Ukraine conflict shows every sign of going on and on and on. And the U.S. Coast Guard is fully engaged in rescue operations across Central Florida. We'll dive deeper into all those stories and more. But first, a look at naval news this week. The U.S. Fourth Fleet on September 26 ordered, ordered all of its ships and aircraft to either leave their Florida bases or prepare for heavy weather as Hurricane Ian approached Florida. Four Navy ships left Mayport Naval Base while six others, unable to get away, rode out the storm pierside, and aircraft fled to bases inland. The U.S. Coast Guard is heavily involved in disaster response operations along Florida's south-central Gulf Coast, hard hit by the storm. Coast Guard helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft, cutters, small response boats are working as we speak to rescue people from flooded areas and places such as Sanibel Island, now cut off from the mainland when its causeway was destroyed. Coasty buoy tenders, meanwhile, are already working to survey channels and repair or replace hundreds of navigational markers displaced by the storm. In the far Pacific, the destroyer Zumwalt and littoral combat ship Oakland arrived at Yokosuka, Japan, September 26, marking the first Western Pacific deployments for both ships and the first time a Zumwalt-class ship has deployed to a forward operating area. Oakland is fully kitted out with eight box launchers for the Naval Strike Missile. The U.S. carrier Ronald Reagan with destroyer Chancellorsville and two destroyers wrapped up their port visits to South Korea September 28th and began a series of exercises in the Sea of Japan with Korean and Japanese warships, including a major anti-submarine exercise. And Vice President Kamala Harris in Japan for the state funeral of slain former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visited the U.S. destroyer Howard. September 28 at Yokosuka to make an address from the decks of the warship, highlighting the U.S. presence in the region. She then flew to Korea and visited the demilitarized zone at Panmunjom. The U.S. Coast Guard reported September 26th it began tracking a Russian-Chinese naval task force on September 19th in the Bering Sea. The seven-ship group, including the big Chinese destroyer Nanchang, has been operating together for several weeks ranging from the Sea of Japan into the North Pacific. It was the second time this year a Russian-Chinese task group operated inside U.S. exclusive economic zones near Alaska. While there are no international prohibitions against such operations, the move is seen as something of a response to repeated U.S. transits of the Taiwan Strait between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. Russia has transferred two of its newest and most powerful submarines from the Northern Fleet in the Arctic to the Russian Navy's Pacific Fleet. The Bori-class ballistic missile submarine Kainaz Oleg and Severomorsk-class attack submarine Novorosibirsk arrived about September 29th at Fokino Naval Base near Vladivostok. The move significantly strengthens the Russians in the Pacific. 
A military judge in San Diego on September 30th acquitted seaman recruit Ryan Sawyer Mays on arson charges brought by the Navy that he started the fire that eventually led to the loss of the amphibious ship USS Bonham Richard in July 2020. The acquittal essentially reopens the search for the true cause of the fire. The Navy already has disciplined at least three dozen individuals for their roles in the disaster and has made several changes to its import firefighting procedures. Also in San Diego, the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz was tied to a wharf for over a week after its freshwater supply was contaminated with fuel. The problem surfaced as early as September 16th while the ship was at sea and persisted when the ship came back into San Diego on September 17th. Nimitz was connected to the city water supply as its systems were drained and flushed for three days, but without clearing the issue. Meanwhile, the carrier strike group began pre-deployment exercises off Southern California in advance of the carrier getting underway again. The U.S. Navy announced September 29th it has purchased the research vessel Petrol from BVI Incorporated, the entity known as Vulcan, that that sponsored the ship's numerous expeditions searching for long-lost and significant World War II shipwrecks. A pet project of the late Microsoft founder Paul Allen, the Vulcan Group carried out a series of astounding finds that were well-documented with state-of-the-art video equipment. Among the wrecks the group discovered were the U.S. cruiser Indianapolis, carriers Lexington, Hornet, and Wasp, Japanese battleships Musashi, and aircraft carriers Akagi and Kaga. The group planned to continue its operations after Allen's 2018 death, but it appears now to have disbanded. The Navy purchased the ship for $12.4 million for use by the Naval Facilities Engineering and Expeditionary Warfare Center. And on September 29th, the cruiser USS Port Royal, CG-73, was ceremonially decommissioned at Pearl Harbor, the fifth cruiser to be decommissioned since August. Port Royal, who entered service in July 1994, was the newest of the 27 Ticonderoga cruisers of which 10 now have been decommissioned. And that's just some of this week's Naval News. All right, let's move on to the discussion part of the show. Um, We covered a lot at the top, and um, what we decided to do this week was to have a little bit of an open discussion, given that we hit on so many important issues. Chris, let's first start with the um, acquittal that took place on Friday out in San Diego, um, this trial of seaman recruit Ryan Sawyer Mays, um, the whole thing, in addition to how the fire was handled on board USS Bonham Richard, the whole kind of justice part of this had been criticized by many, many in uniform and those that were familiar with it, um, the most vocal being from ProPublica this week. There was a, a lengthy article that um, really went through Um, all of the poor thinking and uh, poor processes um, that the Navy had followed in bringing these charges. Um, Before I turn it over to you, I'll just give you my very quick hot take. And it's not so much on this particular case. It really is the state of Naval justice in these high profile cases. If you look at how the Navy handled um, the Fitzgerald and McCain cases, if you look at how they handled um, the SEAL uh, war crimes cases, and now the latest case here in San Diego, 
something seems to be amiss with the Naval uh, Justice Service and the folks that are in charge of prosecuting these cases. I don't know if it's influenced by leadership. I don't know if it's just that they are rushing to judgment and and not doing well in these high profile cases, but um, they haven't fared very well, both in in the courtroom and in uh, the public domain. No, they haven't. I mean, this you cited some good ones there, so, and, and, and for prior examples, the one that uh, that, I, that hits me because I'm older is uh, all going all the way back to 1989 in the Iowa, right? Which was just a nut job of a fiasco, um, trying to blame a couple guys for having some kind of affair with each other and being jealous. It was uh, it was it was really it was embarrassing. It was incon- uncomfortable because it got a ton of publicity. It was all over everything, and um, and yet it all fell. It all fell apart. It completely fell apart, and eventually they they approved that that had nothing at all to do whatsoever with that explosion. It was, um, and I, it was, I mean, it's it still stings to this day. I think how embarrassing that was, and I mean, NCIS really wrecked its reputation for the longest time, frankly, until the NBC television series started. Now has continued. Um, but they still kind of bring this stuff back up. I don't know. I mean, I this from everything I heard, it sounded like a shaky case to begin with. Um, the bigger story was not really how how the fire started. It is something you want to know for sure. No question about that. But you know, fires do happen. Um, fires happen everywhere. And the question is not always you want to know what happened to it, but the bigger question is a fire started and then what happened? And for whatever reason, a fire started on this ship and just about everything that happened subsequent to that, how that turned out pretty poorly. Uh, ProPublica had a good time with that story. On the other hand, the Navy itself has done a pretty good job now documenting the endless failures up and down the line, just from flag officers right all, all the way down everywhere. On the, it's just, it, it is astounding the failures that that started that that Sunday morning and kept up all week. They kept up all week. Um, just one one fiasco decision after another. So trying to pl- trying to blame it on some nineteen year old kid. Oh yeah, it's all his fault. It's like really, really, really. Anyway, I think um, I don't know where they go from here, but um, it goes. It certainly goes in, in, into the in, into the folder, the, the bin labeled fiasco. Um, so, uh, before we get to the Gerald R. Ford, let's let's just go right to another fiasco that's going on right now, and that is the carrier Nimitz. Yeah. So you you have a lot more experience than I do with aircraft carrier um, potable water systems. Um, what do you think is going on with this? What 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 has happened here? I mean, J, so JP five fuel has gotten into the ship's drinkable water system. On the other hand, on carriers, they mix the two in the same in the same tanks for ballast. So as the as as you drink for as you use up fuel, you refill it with water. Um, it keeps the ships trim and keep the ships in trim. Theoretically, they they separate when they're floating. They don't they don't mix. Sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. So most people who've been on a ship for a long time are familiar with there's there is a fuel taste in the water today. Don't you drink it for a while? I mean, what do you make of this, Chris? You know, as you said, it's a fiasco. Um, and 
you know, as somebody that served on a number of aircraft carriers and uh, was an officer of the deck and, you know, studied the systems as part of that process, I, I other than a major screw up in which, um, you know, someone uh, inadvertently or, or deliberately, for whatever reason, put fuel in the potable water tanks, on a nuclear carrier, that's typically not the way it's done. Um, you, you know that there are all sorts of stories of conventional carriers like the Kennedy and the Midway and the, the Connie, um, and you, you know where where folks had told stories of uh, you know they would tell stories of they would take a shower or wash their hair or do whatever, and they would you know they'd have a a film of um, right. of JP five on it, but. I, I had never heard that on a nuclear carrier and certainly wasn't my experience because the, the water is, is made by reverse osmosis and right. that system is right. typically closed. So um, one, I don't know how it happened to begin with, but I mean, we're three weeks almost into this. I, I, I don't know how they haven't figured out or fixed it. Yeah. I mean, that that's what's the most bizarre to me is that, okay, if something bad happened, somebody, you, you know, the the valves were misaligned or whatever the case may be. Right. Three weeks later, you can't figure this out. And, oh, by the way, this is a ship that is sort of at a critical point in its deployment cycle. Right. No, they're missing they're, they're, they're missing their comptuex the, the the major pre-deployment exercise sitting connected to, to the san diego water supply i mean that's um that's embarrassing <laughs> it's of course everybody in san diego can see the ship they're still there today yeah there they are um that's not that's not working out i don't understand it i don't understand why if you if you flush the system and everybody checks it plenty of people to go around physically check it's a big big ship with a lot of connections still um that 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 is, um, that's defying logic right now. On the other side, the Nimitz being the Navy's oldest aircraft carrier, uh, the Navy's newest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford is gearing up for a deployment or a cruise or a shakedown, or a, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, this, this is a ship that's been, that was commissioned five years ago and has yet to make an operational cruise for a ton of reasons, which we're not going to belabor to death today. Um, this is the world's most expensive ship ever built. It's the largest ship ever built for the United States Navy. It is chock full of, it's a new design, chock full of uh, a number of new technologies all over. A lot of those technologies, by the way, are actually working. Um, people people do focus on, on the stuff that doesn't work. Um, so they're, they're going to finally go out for an event. What do you, you're, you are a communications professional, Mr. Cervello, and you know how to shape messages. And of course you have great experience and almost the highest levels in the Navy trying to shape. They, there are, they are confused to this day and it's going out in a couple of days. Um, what to call this? Is it a, is it a deployment? Is it a limited deployment? Is it a service retained deployment which nobody's ever heard of or is it just a little training cruise what do you what do you think what do you how, how is this hitting you they obviously are are a bit confused about how they want to talk about it um you, you know if you ask folks at the pentagon they kind of tell you one way um in explaining or they you know what what the uh, the actual verb is that we're calling you know or the or the noun in the verb i mean they don't always agree then you go down to the fleet uh level in norfolk and you ask them and they kind of tell you something different and then you ask ost and they tell you something different 
you know, so there's been a little bit of a, of a failure to agree upon how they're going to talk about it. I mean, I imagine that there's public affairs guidance and look, I mean, I'll, I'll, um, I'll give them credit in the sense that this is, it's different, right? The Navy doesn't do a lot of service generated deployments. Typically deployments are as a result of um, combatant commander um, requests for forces. Those forces are then vetted um, by the services. They go to the Secretary of Defense and they are, are an official um, global force management deployment. That's what we've done for really the last 20 years or so, maybe with the exception of uh, um, you know, major exercises that that have occurred, you know, few and far between. In this case, as I understand it, and, and as the Navy's talked about it, this is not a global force management deployment. This is a, a service initiated deployment, which means that there are certain, um, uh, I guess you'd say, governing uh, guidance that, you know, that cover the the service deployments versus the GFM deployments and you know all that stuff is important it has to do with uh you know what certifications the strike group has um you know who is on that uh deployment and, and the types of missions that they can do and the um the types of benefits that uh, they're entitled to so there's a lot of legal and operational ease but i think the navy least up to this point has missed an opportunity to just come up with a very, you know, simple and crisp way of explaining it. You and I were talking during the week. How would you have explained this to my mom if she said, what's going on with the Gerald R. Ford? Um, and so hopefully they'll get to that pretty quickly because, I mean, I would say that, yes, that's part of the story, but the, the more important part of the story is, is how this ship will um, operate um, you know, what systems will break? And there's always systems that break, but what systems won't break? How will the crew do? How will they, how will the strike group do? Or excuse me, how will the air wing do with the, the new systems? I mean, th that to me is the real story here. So the sooner that they figure out how they want to talk about it, the more they can focus on that real story. Yeah. I mean, it is a shame that they're really, they're really hung up on how to describe this. And you, you get the feeling that nobody's really in charge. Too many entities are driving this and too many entities have problems with too many other people and what they're doing. And it's coming out looking pretty darn silly. You know, they're, they, they, they were calling it at the beginning of this week, a service retained deployment, which the Navy was also claiming was not a new term has been used before. That's not, they were unable to find any, instances where that's been used before it didn't mean anything to anybody and that was it was a, there was a, a actually a press press uh briefing earlier in the week and most more than half the time was was spent trying to people asking what does that mean and the navy was unable really to to give them a good answer that people understood uh gfm by the way this global force management um this is a this is this is at the highest levels of the pentagon the joint chiefs and we have you have you you literally have all the forces of the United States military at your disposal. What are they? You you try to match up the requirements of the combatant commanders, places like CENTCOM, Central Command, European Command, Indo-Pacific Command. They all have requirements. I want I want so I want such and such forces. And the Global Force Management Program Management System takes these assets which are aircraft carriers and air wings and army um, formations and Marines and air force expeditionary units and bombing units and, and all of it, all of it 
and they mix and match and they plan it out to meet these needs. And there's, there's a schedule. It's continually updated, continually played with, but nobody talks about it too much because every deployment is a GFM, Global Force Management Deployment. Now they're going to great pains to try to talk about a GFM deployment. And a lot of people simply are just not familiar with hearing it that way. And the people inside the Pentagon and, and planners everywhere know that term and are comfortable with it, but it's not out there in the, in the lexicon, the public. So they're trying to dif differentiate this a service-directed deployment, i.e. the chief of naval operations says, I want you to go do something, not some combatant commander somewhere. That means that the, the ship and the strike group are nominally not available for national tasking if something comes up. They're not going to go into the Mediterranean and, and um, go face-to-face -face with the Russians. They're not going to go into the Baltic. They're not going to go someplace else. Um, they're going to stay in relatively, relatively safe areas the Russian submarines will be watching them all the way. The Chinese and Russian satellites will be finding, looking for them everywhere they go. But they're pretty much going to stay in the Atlantic. And then the, the commanding officer said, the, the Atlantic Ocean is our playground. It's a big ocean. They're going to go up to the North Atlantic. Sounds like they're going to go spend, spend at least a, the back half of it up there. There's a lot of foreign engagement. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get out on the ship once uh, she gets to sea at least for, for a brief visit. I hope to talk about that next week. Um, there's a lot, you know, you know, people, the, one, of the, one of the fallout issues of not being able to describe what they're doing well and, and in, in the process confusing everybody is it sounds like they're trying to hide something and they're trying to obfuscate things. In some ways they are. But that makes everybody think that their ship is still full of problems and what's wrong and this isn't working and the emails, the electromagnetic launch system doesn't work. And anyway, on and on and on. And it, it, it's, it's, it's not helping. It was, it's, it's been a mistake. For my money, you just should call it a shakedown cruise. All right. It's a shakedown. People understand what that means. It's a limited goal. We're just trying things out. We're going to see how it works. We'll do a full deployment next year. Right now, it's a shakedown. Why they didn't just call it that is, is something beyond me. Some lawyered term like service retained deployment sounds a whole lot more like anally retained than service retained or a meaningful term. It just doesn't work. Anyway, I'm. I well, someone's end of tour award will say that they came up with the <laughs> name for uh, for the you know the Ford deployment. So All you right. know, at, at least we can take solace <laughs> in that. My suggestion would be I would find whoever came up with that idea, and whoever approved it. I would uh, wish them well in their future career and be done with them. Well, that person will be promoted. I guarantee, Chris. Yeah, well, okay. Oh, thanks. That's so uplifting. I do think it worked. I, I, I do have a positive feeling about this program. I have to admit um, it's, it, it's come through an, an unbelievable amount of problems. A lot of it's self-inflicted. Um, but from here on out, um, I think it's going to be, a, I, I think it's going to work a whole lot better than a lot of people think. Well, name, name um, of the deployment aside, it does sound like they're off to the right start in terms yeah. of engaging media and, you know, um, talking at the fleet level, talking at the ship level, yep. Yep. Um, getting media out there. So, I mean, yep. you know, hopefully um, we'll be able to share a lot of information and, and read yep. about this um, event, because as you said, it's a very important event. It's a long time coming. Yep. Um, the, the technology that they've struggled to get to this point. 
um, is game changing in many cases. So uh, there's a lot of folks like us and our listeners that'll be very interested in learning more. Yeah, no, I, I think I think this program turned a corner about two years ago. I really do. And um, it, it, it is trending upwards. I think that that the, the realization of that has yet to catch up with a lot of people because it's, it's not been trending upwards for the longest time. But I, I, I do believe that. Hope so. We'll go and we'll go and take a look ourselves. So for just a couple minutes, um, let's uh, let's uh, turn to Russia, Ukraine, the Black Sea, all that. I was at I was at a um, a panel discussion this week. Um, actually, mostly uh, Romanians, the head of the Romanian Navy, um, some other officials, uh, former U.S. Chief of Naval Operations Gary Ruffhead, um, were talking about what's the future of the Black Sea, um, and of course, you know the developments this week with Russia, Russia claiming it has annexed, formally annexed uh, the disputed territories of Ukraine, the occupied territories, and uh, most of the world not recognizing it. So this whole conflict just shows every sign of not going away anytime soon. It's, it's really a killing ground. I don't think either side can really prevail um, regardless of the gains that the Ukrainians have been making this week. So it's going it, to, I think it's going to fester um, there is a question about what's the future now for the Black Sea. Of course, there's, there's quite a number of countries on the Black Sea. Um, one of them is, um, uh, some of them are NATO countries, Romania, Bulgaria, um, and of course, Turkey, who, who controls the only way in and out of the Black Sea from the Mediterranean, the Turkish Straits, the Bosphorus at the Black Sea and the Dardanelles at the Mediterranean. And I'm probably dating myself. I think that I think the Turks don't use those terms anymore. But I know all this naval history, and that's what they're known as. Um, but it's just, um, you know, what is going to happen? It was interesting. The the Romanian admiral, the chief of navy, was asked, you know, what are his needs? And there was a consensus that you know we need to support allies in the area. They're they're saying that um, they're one of the strongest, America's strongest allies in the in the region. Um, they have an interesting navy, an interesting navy with a lot of indigenous designs. Um, unique to the to the Romanians, uh, doesn't look like anybody else. A mishmash of all kinds of things, um, but they're old and they and they're wearing out. And um, the admiral was asked what he needs, and he started. He after saying pleasantries and, dip, and being diplomatic, he started saying, "Well, we need new frigates, we need corvettes, and we need new uh, patrol ships, and we need new uh, minesweepers, and we need." So essentially, he needed a new navy. Um, he is the the topic of mines. Is very much on the on everybody's forefront. Um, there's been about, I think, sixty or so mines have been swept by other countries. Other countries meaning non non Ukraine, non Russian, um, in the region, and they're laid by the Ukrainians. They're laid by the Russians. And there's there's some of them are small, some of them are huge. Um, one of one of the mine, Romanian minesweepers touched us off a couple weeks ago. Touched one, touched the mine off. Fortunately, it was a small mine, but um, when is the when are are other ships going to transit the the Turkish Straits now is a big question. Uh, the Russians have stayed away from it. There's something called the Montreux Convention, something that dates from the 1930s. Uh, one of the reasons people think that Putin called it a special operation is it did not legally invoke the Montreux Convention, which is in time of war. But there's a de facto war going on, whether you call it that or not. It's a war. So it's, this is a lawyer thing. And there seems to be a gentleman's agreement between the Russians and the Turks 
that the Russians so far haven't forced the issue and haven't tried to send naval units through. NATO, for its part, has not been sending ships through either to force the issue. So they've been, they've been staying away. But at some point, I think the Russians are just going to, they are going to force it. I asked the question at one point, what, you know, what happens when, when the Russians do that? And there was a lot of kind of, well, I'm not sure. Um, I do think people have, have gamed that situation out. I just don't know what happens. Um, yeah, I mean, we we talked about this with um, Dr. Weir um, right. and with Professor uh, Gingeris uh, in right. March and April. Um, th this, to me, remains, I think, the most dangerous part of this conflict. Um, you know, we've sort of reached a, a stasis when it comes right. to Western, um, you, you know, arming of Ukraine. I, I just don't see a... I don't see a case in which NATO floods the Black Sea, even if it's consistent with the Montreux Convention, uh, and and Russia allows that to happen. I, I think that is a straw that breaks the the camel's back. And so, um, while this hasn't, uh, it's received episodic headlines and episodic, um, you know, notice from kind of mainstream uh, defense media. I don't know that other than maritime experts, if people are are really giving this the attention that it that it needs. This to me is something that's going to, you know, we had hoped that Turkey would would take a leadership role, um, and it looked that way when we had that conversation with Ryan Gingeris of the Naval Postgraduate School. Since then, I would say that they sort of balked and and missed their opportunity. Now we're at a at a place where you know it could get a lot hotter. Uh, in the Black Sea, um, right. you know, if people respond to these requests for uh, armaments and requests for forces. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. We will indeed. Well, we, it's time for us to move on. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. This week, Mr. Cavus talks about the value of the Coast Guard, which is near and dear to my heart this week, particularly. Thanks, Chris. Well, the devastation that has swept over southwest and central Florida clearly is staggering, rivaling scenes all too familiar from previous hurricanes like Katrina and Andrew, disasters that left permanent scars easily seen to this day. My pod partner, Mr. Savello, and his family took some of Ian's blast as well, even though they're on Florida's Atlantic coast. The aerial views of the region around Fort Myers Beach, Naples, Sanibel Island show devastation not just to everything on shore, but how what's left of streets in those areas are littered with boats. Many areas remain flooded. Bridges and causeways are gone, cutting off islands from the mainland. While there are first responders of all kinds, among those that can be counted on to swoop into all those stricken regions are the women and men of the United States Coast Guard. I often think the Coast Guard is the most interesting, certainly the busiest, and least appreciated of all the military services. The things they do cover an incredible range, marine safety, ports and waterways security, fisheries patrol, drug and migrant interdiction, marine environmental protection, maintaining aids to navigation, ship inspections, ice operations, disaster and crisis response, interactions with dozens of small navies and countries around the world, and of course, search and rescue. Their motto is Semper Paratus, always ready, and time after time when they're really needed, the Coasties come through. There are only about 42,000 men and women in uniform in the Coast Guard. We can never support them enough. To all those folks, 
Thank you. Well said, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.